District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org to learn about our sponsor and the great work they're doing. Thanks for tuning in today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. I will be having a series of interviews from or stemming from the Congressional Sportsman Foundation NASC Summit. This is the first one of the group. I sat down with Tom Opry, CEO and founder of Shepherds of Wildlife Society. And I know Tom from my involvement in the Professional Outdoor Media Association. We've crossed paths a lot of times, but we finally were able to sit down about his documentary work and conservation work through the organization. And if you don't know what Shepherds of Wildlife Society is, it was formed to reconnect our society with nature, to make the abstract real, and to preserve and protect wildlife and its habitat for generations to come through the development of educational and motivational materials that support habitat sustainability, and management of wildlife through established wise use principles of active conservation, sustainable utilization, and hunting. You'll learn about his breakout success in Killing the Shepherd, which focuses on Zambia and Africa. It's a very compelling documentary. And he also tees up the soon-to-be-released more European-based, or Scottish-based, rather, documentary that that they've been working on called The Last Keeper about the problems happening there due to rewilding efforts and just more people being disconnected from hunting and hunting legacies. And then he also previews maybe what other projects, perhaps those that are more specific to North America, could be on the horizon. So I think you will enjoy our conversation. It's fairly long and extensive. It's a little longer than we'd like, but I didn't want to take out anything substantive because the guests have to speak for themselves. We don't want to lose anything on substance. And I think if you want to learn how to advocate for hunting better through storytelling, video storytelling, this is one of the best ways to do it. And I learned a lot from listening to Tom speak about his work and what his group hopes to accomplish. So check out my conversation with Tom Opry today on the podcast. Let me know what you think and be sure to check the show notes to learn more about the various different documentaries and ways to support Shepherds of Wildlife Society. Tom, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Good to connect with you again. No, it's a pleasure to be here, Gabriel. And thank you. Uh, and thank you to your audience for allowing me to be here and give you guys a little insight into my world. Mm-hmm. For those who don't know you, Tom, could you introduce yourself and talk about your organization? Yeah, sure. You know, uh, I, I'm basically a filmmaker. 
Uh, I've been carrying a camera since I was 19 years old, so it's been a little while. Uh, started out in the feature film business in Hollywood and ended up doing stuff for Discovery Channel for Shark Week and worked my way through the uh, kind of more of the higher end film production, the television commercials, and eventually had a show on outdoor television on NBC Sports for seven years called Eye of the Hunter, which was the highest rated show on NBC Sports back in, Very cool. oh, I want to say 2007, 2008 through 2015. And, uh, and then since then, uh, you know, I, after spending a lot of time helping people and corporations make lots and lots of money with TV commercials, I figured, well, who's going to remember the last TV commercial I made? And so uh, a bunch of photographers, uh, wildlife photographers, and I got together and, and a few outdoor filmmakers, and we decided to uh, do something a little more legacy-oriented. And the idea behind it was that, you know, we see what's going on in, in nature, we see a man's impact on it, and thus we wanted to create an organization that could help educate the broader public because we saw there was a huge disconnect when it comes to nature and specifically conservation issues uh, that deal with sustainable use and hunting. And so uh, we formed an organization called the Shepherds of Wildlife Society and the organization is basically has a mission to reconnect modern society with nature. Um, you know, we're really looking to create uh, social acceptance of our modern conservation model, which is the, the greatest conservation model humans have devised in our history. Uh, you know, our ancestors here who came in North America did a pretty good mm -hmm. job of mucking the place up. And uh, since the late 1800s, uh, wiser heads have prevailed. Guys like George Bergenhall and Theodore Roosevelt ushered in this modern conservation ethos that we practice today. And uh, you know, we've, we've done a pretty good job. It isn't perfect by any means, but it's done a pretty good job. We've got some incredible wildlife uh, and habitat that we've got here throughout the United States and Canada. And, uh, and so it's really important with 8 billion humans on the planet, somebody take care of wildlife. And wildlife doesn't live in cities. It lives out on the rural landscape. It doesn't live on top of mountains, because most mountains are covered under snow uh, for a large, vast part of the year. And, uh, and so it's going to be uh, incumbent on the people that live with wildlife to take care of it. So those are those rural communities, some cases rural indigenous communities, all over the world. And there's all kinds of examples of where these people actually see a benefit for doing hard work in wildlife and habitat conservation. So part of me being uh, you know, at this Congressional Sportsman's Foundation's uh, NAS conference, where they bring all these state legislators here, uh, is to be able to talk at the ground level because what we see when it comes to good and bad legislation, bad legislation, good legislation, it always originates at the local level. And we're seeing that throughout different state legislatures all over the United States. And so it's imperative for us to tell that story not necessarily us telling a story, but us allowing to give a voice to these mm -hmm. rural communities so they can talk about how important wildlife is to them and the things that it allows them to do in their lives. And it's the most basic things in life that we all take for granted in the Western world. You know, it provides good paying jobs, opportunities for access to health care, uh, and, you know, an education for kids, depending on where you are. And so it's really important that the broader people understand, you know, that spectrum of people that, you know, when they get up in the morning, they flip a switch, they expect the lights to come on, they have no idea where the electricity comes from, right. don't care. <laughs> and then the next thing, walk in the bathroom, flush the toilet out of sight, out of mind. And the next decision of the day, is it a chai latte or a caramel macchiato? Um, two thirds of the world doesn't live that way. And certainly when it comes to making decisions, uh, people, because of the internet now, because there's information that comes out like a fire hydrant and the, the ability for certain groups of people to manipulate that and weaponize it, we're seeing a huge, you know, huge problem here where people are making decisions that are really having adverse effects on wildlife and wildlife habitat and those rural communities all over the world. Uh, case in point, uh, hunting uh, trophy import bans. Uh, when you 
tell someone that that animal doesn't have a value because, you know, in the case of our modern conservation model, hunters who pay to go hunting pay for the conservation. And conservation is not free. And so when you have that scenario that they can no longer facilitate someone coming over to, to hunt in their country or their state or their reservation, um, you just tell them that the animal has no value. And so when you get to a certain point, you have to remember everything in science has told us that wildlife will overpopulate the carrying capacity of the land. All animals do that. So you're going to have a surplus if you have healthy habitats. And so eventually you're going to have human-wildlife conflict. And then what's going to happen, and, you know, it's like grizzly bears in Montana where I live. Right. Grizzly bears are expanding their range. Well, you know, they're living in places where we haven't seen them in 150 years, 200 years. And so you're asking people to live with them and try to coexist with them and without any real knowledge of what's going on. And so you have to decide, okay, well, what are we willing to live with and not live with? Mm -hmm. And it becomes a political thing so that we try to figure out how do we get around this. Because we want to have grizzly bears. We want to have biodiversity. Yeah. I mean, my dad, my dad was an outdoor writer for 30 years, and, and he used to tell me as a kid, he's like, hey, the very first environmentalist was a hunter. So, so really, that's what we're trying to do with Shepherds of Wildlife Society mm -hmm. is, is, is give a voice to these rural people and let them tell their story because it really resonates with these folks. And, it, and it's, that, it's not that people don't really understand what's going on. They just don't have the opportunity to, uh, to know, to get the knowledge and stuff. It's, it's, it's a little bit of ignorance. And, uh, but when you give them an opportunity to, to watch our films and see what's going on, most cases, the people come around to like, okay, yeah, I get it. The light bulb goes off. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so it's really important what we're doing as far as being able to tell people those stories so that we can have social acceptance of modern conservation. Indeed, yeah. And we also have what I'm seeing kind of translate now to policy is federal rulemaking, not even from Congress, but you see top-down decisions handed from agencies who are supposed to be working in the interest of sportsmen. So maybe something you guys will tackle down the road is overreach by supposed you know, sportsman-friendly agencies. It could be Department of Interior, Fish and Wildlife, who are not following their mission statement. Um, and that's what I see potentially affecting us in North America, too. Yeah, yeah no, that's great that you bring that up, because uh, the last film I did, Killing the Shepherd, which was about a rural community. Talk more about that, too. Yes, Yeah, please. that's uh, led by a woman chief, which is rare for that part of the world, uh, wanted to break the bonds of poverty by waging a war against uh, wildlife poaching. So mm -hmm. they had uh, bushmeat poaching gangs, very militaristic, very organized, coming in and literally decimating their wildlife populations, all in the name of selling a, a package of dried meat back in the capital of, of Lusaka and Zambia. And so they literally did destroy uh, what was once a Valhalla of safari wildlife, and big five, you know, the lions and rhinos and elephants and all that were there. And, uh, and back to 2015, when, uh, when, when they started this effort, uh, they'd lost probably 70, 80% of their wildlife. And so the long and the short of it is, is we were able to tell that story of these people, which is an incredible story of resilience and, and, and be, taking people out of poverty by having the opportunity to realize a benefit from their hard work in wildlife and habitat conservation, to realize their most basic human rights. In two instances, uh, you know, I was able to do a screening with the upper leadership of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service before the film came out. Uh, we did a, a, a Microsoft Teams 
uh, viewing of it. And you know, and these weren't these weren't uh, political appointees. These right. are the, these are the bureaucrats. These are the these were the lifers, and they asked the right questions. I was pretty impressed. Um, and then also we were able to go into, into Congress and meet with congressmen and women and showcase the film. And we do this with all our films. Not only are they a feature film, we also have a program where we do an hour-long version for PBS. And then we do a sub-30-minute version specifically for screenings in mm -hmm. universities, you know, educational-type stuff, uh, corporate boardroom, and political screenings. And so, uh, you know, I was able to sit down uh, with the three ladies that wrote the CECIL Act, the Democratic Staffers and Natural Resources mm -hmm. Committee hearing room, um, with their counterpart on the Republican side, um, Kyle Weaver, who works with, at the time worked for Bruce Westerman and Congressman Westerman, and uh, you know, it, it was really fascinating to hear their whole pretense for mm -hmm. this. And I literally said, well, of course, it started off with a scenario where, well, you know, we think this is wrong or that's wrong, and okay, fine, and Danny, and then it was like, well, you know, we, the people in your film, they don't need to have, you know, consumptive tourism, don't need to have safari hunting or any of this other stuff. What they need is to have photo safaris. And I said, well, did you all understand what I, I explained to you where this film takes place? It's not the Serengeti. There's no great migration. Matter of fact, we've lost, like I said, 70, 80% of the different animals. There's certain species that have gone locally extinct because of poaching. And, uh, you know, did you not understand what I just said? And, and they looked at me and I said, well, do you all know what the creme de la creme of a photo safari is, right? And they looked at me with blank stares. And I said, well, let's just see the big five, duh, you know? You want to see those animals. But the creme de la creme of a photo safari, it is to be back at the safari lodge at the end of the day, sipping on a gin and tonic, waiting for a kudu steak to come off the grill. Mm -hmm. And someone in the room has witnessed and videotaped another animal killing another animal. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter if it's a lion, leopard, crocodile, hyena, you know, cheetah, whatever it is. That is the creme de la creme de la creme of a photo safari. They looked at me with dumb stares. And I said... <laughs> Do you understand what your policy is? Your policy tells me that Godfrey Mwimba, who's the chief game scout in Kapanda in my film that we feature, who has nine children and his wife, that he doesn't have a right to a good paying job so he can feed his family. Your policy tells me that he also doesn't have a right to have access to health care. And your policy also tells me that his children will never have an opportunity for a quality education. Mm -hmm. What your policy tells me is that this man and his family cannot realize their most basic human rights. Sounds like neocolonialism. Uh, yeah, it's the definition <laughs> of it. And quite frankly, neocolonialism is uh, you know, just another form of racism. Yep. And you know, I, I know that the broader public out there, we all want to see our plant be healthy. We want to see vibrant wildlife populations. And for us, it's, it's, it's about leaving this place better than we found it. Absolutely. I mean, it's about clean drinking water and healthy forests. And I mean, like I said, you know, the, the hunter was the very first environmentalist. Mm -hmm. And so it's so important that we take care of this place so we leave it better, not only just for our children, but everyone else's children and great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren from there. Because this planet is a very special place. Mm -hmm. And we need to make sure that as a species, we're much better neighbors with everything that lives on it. What are the accolades that Killing the Shepherd has so, gotten so far? I have to tell you, so we made this film. It's not a rah-rah hunting film or anything like this. This is an outdoor television. It truly is a mainstream documentary. And I didn't really have a lot of high hopes that we'd have a lot of success in the film festival world. That's which we went to first and started submitting it, started getting accepted, started winning awards. We ended up in over 40 film festivals all over the world, won over 20 major awards, and probably the most important awards to me 
where awards for social justice and indigenous and human rights. You never would think that with a hunting documentary. No, and it, but it's not a hunting documentary. Right. It's, it, it's, 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 or it's, hunting category. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's one aspect of a, of a economic model that's multifaceted so that, you know, it's allowed for people to realize a benefit for ensuring that there is wildlife mm -hmm. and wildlife habitat. And that's, it's no different than we have here in North America, right? Our, our North American model, you know, if you have a value in something, you have a tendency to take care of it. Mm -hmm. That's why you have birds in your bird feeder. That's why you have deer and turkey in your backyards. That's why you have national forests. So those, those are all because of hunters. And so we just have to realize, and we have to get to the point where we stop demonizing hunters. It's really easy to do on social media. It's really good and easy to do uh, the fact that we outsource all of our killing now. You know, here in America, you know, you, you can't go out and buy wild game in the grocery store because of our market hunting pass. We have laws in every state, and of course the Lacey Act that kind of puts mm -hmm. an exclamation point on it. It doesn't help um, also when there are studies, we talked about it last night, mm -hmm. that say that hunters are worsening biodiversity. You do not, that does not help when the media coverage is putting out misinformation. Yeah, like that too. total misinformation. But, it, you know, and even the word conservation. Yeah. It's one of our pet peeves is I'll see headlines that'll talk about the Center for Biological Diversity, Humane <laughs> Society International, or Humane Jokes Society of organization United, that, 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 are, that are conservationist honest. organizations. No, you know, and, and I'm hardly. Like, it's like I, I've got a journalism degree. I, when I, I send emails routinely to the writers and, and, and authors of these publications, and I'm like, hey, go back to journalism school because you need to go look what the definition of conservation is. To be a conservationist, you must conserve. Mm -hmm. That's a physical act. And if you read what the definition is in Webster's, it is specifically Wise to wisely use a natural resources, natural resource. Yeah. And the two antidotes they give is water conservation mm -hmm. and wildlife conservation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the one thing about wildlife, it's renewable. Mm -hmm. And one thing people don't really realize is that elephant is going to have offspring. That lion's going to have offspring. That deer is going to have offspring. The turkeys. I mean, look what's happened in the northeastern United States with turkeys. They've become the complete opposite of what they were two, 250 years ago. They've become a, a, a nuisance in places like Rhode Island and Connecticut, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. because they're living in suburbia because the human footprint is moved into these farms that have been subdivided. So we've moved in onto their habitat. And that's one of the things people... Like, little things I like to bring up to people. It's like, well, we, we, we don't really think this idea works very well. And I'm like, well... Do you have wood in your house? Do you have furniture? Do you have a house that's made with two by fours or two by sixes? All of that was habitat for wildlife at one time. Where your house sits or where your city sits was all habitat for wildlife at one time. Mm -hmm. Just with eight billion humans on the planet, we better start figuring out what we need to have to make sure that we have wildlife in the future. And that is actually a theme of your upcoming film, uh, The Last Keeper which is a very different geographic region. And you gave us a 20-minute preview here at NASC. And it's very similar to Killing the Shepherd in many regards, but obviously a different problem, different continent. So what can people expect if they see this new film? Or how does it differ from Killing the Shepherd? Well, you know, it's, it's a little bit different in so, in so much as that the commonality is we're dealing with rural communities here again. So this is about the, the gamekeepers, the gillies, the fishing guides, the, the deer stalkers who have for hundreds of years have been employed by landowners to manage the lands of, of the Scottish Highlands. Uh, and this is something that it kind of came across when uh, Queen Victoria, Prince Albert, came to Scotland in the mid-1800s and fell in love with it and bought Balmoral. Uh, but because the place had been devoid of lots of humans because of the clearances which started at 100 years prior to that, after the Battle of Culloden, um, you know, when you take humans out of the equation, wildlife 
fills in the gaps. I and mean, we saw this with COVID. We were starting to see yeah, different animals and all stuff in places where we hadn't seen them because yeah. you had too many, too many taxi cars going across the highway <laughs> and too many ships going down the, you know, the bay. And um, so what you have there is you had a resurgence of, of red deer, the native red deer, native red grouse, and salmon. And because there was nobody on the landscape utilizing those resources, very few people, and there, and there was very few people in Scotland too. And also, mm-hmm. just to give you perspective, Scotland's not a big place. It's the geographic landmass of, of, like of that, New yeah. Jersey. Okay. Okay. But it's got four to five million people, but they all live in a, a band between Glasgow and Edinburgh, kind of in the south I central see. part yeah. of the country. And so, but it's those people that dictate policy mm-hmm. because they have the votes and they have the ear of the politicians. Where in the countryside, you have people that work for landowners. And these landowners, some of them are aristocrats, people that have owned land for many, many, many generations, hundreds of years. In many cases, though, some of these people are that have bought land. It's no different here in the United States that say, hey, maybe you did well in your business and you wanted to buy a ranch in Montana, so you bought a few thousand, 5,000 acres. Um, you know, it's not cheap, but it's not something that you have to be put in a club in order to purchase. It's a free country. And so you have a scenario where the people that live in that population band have kind of, you, know, you kind of have, if you go back in the history of Scotland in any family, any Scottish family, you're going to either have the oppressed or the oppressor. And so there's, there's, that's just the history of it. And that's why when we watch the film, you, you kind of see that animated sequence we did of telling the story of the history. Because, boy, it goes back to, you know, the Pictish and you know, all the way to, you know, having William the Conqueror and the Normans come in and bring in the feudal land system. You know, and one of the key things, too, is like the word forest. You know, people think, well, that's a place of trees. Well, it really isn't. The original naming of using the word forest means the royal hunting grounds. And back then in Scotland, there wasn't a plethora of trees everywhere. Historically, the landscape for the last four or 5,000 years has only had four or 5% of the landmass covered in tree cover. Yeah, that's what the yeah. film showed, absolutely. Yeah, so, so it's really interesting. So what you have is a scenario there where you, jealousy, you have people that have historical biases, you have you know the, the landed gentry, but even though they're not maybe gentry, they just might be folks that have, have earned something in order to buy a piece of land. But they're all stereotyped as being these evil landowners, mm. or lairds is what they call, uh, call them in Scotland. And, and then even now we have this scenario where uh, you have landowners, corporations, multinational corporations are coming buying these sporting estates and rewilding them. The idea is they fire all the people that have worked there for a long time. Uh, they turn around and plant trees where they think trees need to be. It's very easy to romanticize a tree. Uh, and in many cases, they're planting trees that aren't even native to Scotland. Within 10 years, the scientists tell me the predominant tree species in Scotland will be the North American Sitka spruce. And that goes back to World War I and World War II because there wasn't much tree cover there and because it was a war, a world war going on, the government thought that it would be good to create their own timber industry. So they brought Sitka spruce, Douglas fir, and larch from North America, which grow fairly fast because Scotland gets 60 inches of rain and these trees grow. Now their soils are not conducive to necessarily being stable for these trees. So a lot of times when you do get these trees that grow 40, 60 years, they'll blow down, not a big wind because just, you know, they get some of the water, the ground gets saturated with moisture. Um, and so there's a real problem with that. But part of it is, is that they try to create this kind of this, this timber industry. But getting back to where the people are and what's going on, you know, there's, there's all this animosity towards landowners. And so the people that work for the landowners bear the brunt of all this animosity. 
uh, the keepers are ostracized sometimes and you know in the in the urban setting or now that social media kids of, of gamekeepers are attacked on social media just like we would see with say anti-hunters versus hunters you know we see a lot of that especially women who hunt uh, you know I know my wife has been you know, the epicenter of many uh, PETA campaigns and Trevor Noah and, and uh, various other comedians that have decided to go after her uh, because she's a woman who hunts, you know, and, and the other side doesn't I quite understand I think all of us received some, I've gotten hate comments, but nothing ever to the level that some other women have, but I will eventually <laughs> probably yeah. get more vitriol, but yeah. it happens to all of us, exactly. unfortunately. And so you have a scenario where, if, you know, what we're looking at is we'd like to see the land be better, you know, leave it better than we found it. We want to make sure that we've got healthy ecosystems and biodiversity and all that stuff, but because of this animosity towards landowners, we're seeing policies that are coming out of the Scottish government, which is an autonomous government to some extent. They can go ahead and create laws for Scotland, even though they're part of the United Kingdom and have to answer to Westminster. But they have quite a bit of autonomy. And they've literally banned the use of all kinds of tools that these keepers use in order mm -hmm. to manage the land. And case in point, grouse moors. So we're talking about the highlands of, of Scotland where you have heather moorland, you've got granite op outcroppings and rocks and big rolling hills, not big mountains, but big rolling stuff, beautiful country, stuff we've seen in shows like Outlander and things like that. It's kind of like uh, tourism for Scotland. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and what we have there is, is the keepers do low intensity burning in these very small, areas, quarter, half acre size uh, of the heather. So when the heather gets to be what they call rank, so it's grown, it's mature, they'll come in and they'll do a low intensity burn. And it, the intensity is so low that we actually put a chocolate bar down in the heather, set the fire, and the wind blew the fire across the area. And when the fire was out, we dug the chocolate bar out and it was just like it came out of the factory. Hmm. Not melted at all or anything. So it takes off that top growth and then they also suppress the ground predators. So that'll be rats, uh, weasels or stoats, uh, and foxes, that's the I mean. They can't uh, go after any avian raptors. It's against the law. It's been that way since the 80s. No different than it is in the United States. Mm -hmm. You can't shoot eagles. And now, there is a problem with, you know, there are a few people out there that are still uh, poaching wild birds, you know, these, these raptors. We have the same problem here in the United States. Every yeah. once in a while you hear about an eagle getting shot or something like that. Yeah, there was a case in Nebraska where two mm -hmm. men from Latin America illegally poached it, wanted to kill it, and one is on the loose, one has been prosecuted so far. Yeah. So, it happens, yeah. so it, 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 when you deal with enough humans, you're always going to have one or two bad apples in every bushel. Indeed. So you have that. And so the Scots have the same problem. And uh, But what they do is exactly what we do in the southeastern United States for managing wild quail in Turkey. We do low-intensity burning, and we suppress the ground predators. Now, in those states, their governments, their fish and game agencies, give awards to landowners for doing that kind of activity. Because we look at it as a positive deal. Over in Scotland, the people would like to hang those landowners because yeah. they want to come up with, oh, you're contributing to global warming, you're persecuting these, these poor, helpless little animals and whatnot. And what the policy does is it, it disincentivizes the landowner to mm -hmm. manage the land. The outcome of the, what they do is not only to improve the habitat for the prey species, which is their red grouse that they want to hunt, which has natively been there for thousands and thousands of years, but also what it does is it creates an opportunity for IUCN red-listed wader birds to come in there. So you've got um, curlew being a major one, oyster catchers, species like that that nest in the moorland, in these areas. Now, of course, if you think about it, you want to have the ability to have your infants survive, your, your offspring, 
you want to go someplace where there's a lot of predators, so they come in there. Of course, with the burning, that creates more food. It opens up some areas so they can kind of see for their own protection. And so you see large numbers of IUCN red-listed waders living on these grouse moors. You also see raptors out the wazoo. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll see half a dozen to six, eight, ten different species of raptors in a day driving around and watching the bird life. Well, it makes sense, right? There's a whole bunch of walking McDonald's, all these red grouse running around and uh, that are naturally hatched in the spring. And, they, and so the keepers are literally you know, trying to shepherd these, these birds to August. And then August 12th is their opening of their grouse season. And, you know, and they do meticulous counts of chicks. They do a grouse count in July. And if they don't have enough birds there, they don't hunt. Yeah, they don't hunt. And so, but what they have done is they've created this, this beautiful landscape. It's a mosaic of little burns and stuff that they have there. And it attracts all this wildlife. And one of the things that the, uh, that the opposition will say is that the, it's, it's, a, it's a wildlife desert. And I'm, we look at the science, and it's absolutely not that. You'd mentioned this, you know, people saying the biodiversity, you know, they, they want to say there's no biodiversity. There's tons of biodiversity there. And man, in fact, the science that's been done, peer-reviewed science, says that if you stop managing the grouse more, within 10 years, you lose 50% of the biodiversity. Wow. And the government currently has, the Scottish government currently has a policy. By 2035, they want to have a zero, a zero net loss in biodiversity in their country. And by 2040, they want to have a gain. Well, they're doing this here with a policy called 30 by 30 as well, mm-hmm. similar to that, to protect you know, lands and waters, but mm-hmm. similar to the tune. And, and now they're starting to support, we see American regulators signing on to biodiversity and same with multinational corporations, mm-hmm. yeah. pledging to do this, but they, it actually has no impact, yeah, yeah. which is virtue signaling a lot but, of the time. But the policy of the government actually is doing the opposite right. of what they claim. Yeah. And it's all because they don't like landowners. Huh. And so then you, you take in, you, so you have this going on. It's just, it's fascinating. You start to get into all these different things. In the, the preview, you showed on. us that because of these conflicts and the lack of incentives and people being displaced from these, you know, operations, the mass killing of red deer, mm-hmm. what you showcased, and so much wanton waste happening, and then just you have very few people managing, and then they're just killing the red deer in mass. And that's horrific. Anyone who's a hunter, and you see that imagery, you're like, this is not sustainable. It should be people. It should be the clients of the gamekeepers you know, going and, and, and managing. But we saw wanton waste. That's what these policies are creating under yep, rewilding precepts. Yeah, and, but part of the issue there is that let's get the rewilding. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the reason why they're killing these deer is because there is this thought process amongst the rewilding community, which is basically elite urban people. We have those here too. (laughs) That aren't on the land, aren't managing the land, that have decided that really in case in point is that deer are evil because they eat trees. Now the red deer in Scotland is very similar to our elk here in North America. Mm -hmm. They're woody browsers during certain times of the year. But when the trees are coming up as saplings and whatnot, uh, usually the grass has now come up to a point. But, you know, you're also talking about a landscape that has evolved over thousands of years. 9,000 years ago, Scotland was covered in glacial ice. When it retreated, when things warmed up, you had tree life, vegetation colonized the area along with plant life, along with humans. Uh, I've had rewilders tell me that part of their objective in Scotland is to have land be better than it was before we, humans, were there. And my question is, well, exactly when was that? <laughs> The next thing is, well, we want to have trees be free. And I'm like, okay, well, how is a tree free if you just planted it in the ground? 
Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of this, this, just this virtue uh, signaling type stuff, human value judgments going on. And so, you know, when you, when you start talking about managing the land, which the keepers have done for hundreds of years in order to, to obviously there's two reasons. They want to be able to have a sustainable harvest, mm-hmm. but they also do this because they love the land and they exactly, can see yeah. what the results are here. Um, but then you have a scenario where you've got, you know, people that are rewilding and say, well, we would just want nature to be free. We don't want, you know, we don't want any human. Down there. As a matter of fact, we interviewed the, the uh, CEO of the John Muir Trust, David Belhari. And he's quite the lightning rod over there. Um, David loves to hunt. First thing he did when with me is he pulled out his iPhone and started showing me all these big stags he's been shooting. And uh, so I'm like, okay, I can get along with you. And uh, but one of the things he's decided is because deer eat trees in the wintertime. Now remember, this is areas that's evolved. There wasn't a lot of trees on it. The trees disappeared because of, of natural evolutional uh, systems. Uh, and so if they start planting trees on there, well, you know, if it's a bad, nasty winter. And most deer there, they don't deal with high concentrations or heavy snow loads. They deal with really wet, cold weather. They die of hypothermia. So instead of, like, we have animals here in North America die of freezing and lack of, lack of food, there it's, it's literally hypothermia. And so if you plant a stand of trees, well, you and I are going to go stand in the trees if it's blowing and raining. Hmm. Well, the deer do the same thing. And, of course, they'll nip off here and there a little bit there, you know, if it's new growth or something, because it's, there's some nutritional value there even in the winter. And so, but so this, this idea that you have to get rid of deer in order for trees to grow that is the whole mantra of this thing. And so these guys want everything to be free, no human impact. And of course, interesting enough, uh, Mr. Balhari said that uh, their ultimate goal is to get these foreign billionaires to come in and buy up all these estates, which the largest landowner in Scotland right now is a guy named Anders Paulson, who is a Scandinavian clothing manufacturer, multi-billionaire. And he's bought all these estates up and he's rewilding them, planting trees everywhere. Uh, they're, they're trying to bring in other species like beavers, lynx. Um, there's talk that the ultimate goal would be have bears and wolves um, hmm. and a land with eight, 8 million sheep on it. <laughs> uh, so you can, it doesn't take much imagination to yeah, figure out that's going to be. Uh, but that's, the, that's what they look at. That's let nature be free. We don't want to have man's impact on it. And I said, well, why do you want these guys to buy this land and do this? And he says, well, because they have the money to build the infrastructure for tourism because that's going to be the new economy, not the sporting <laughs> industry. We're going to have people walking on trails. We're going to have lodges. We're going to have restaurants and hotels. And I looked at him and I said, David, you're the CEO of what? John Muir Trust. Okay. Do you ever read any of John Muir's writings? He absolutely abhorred the human footprint on the land. He didn't want to see anything man-made. He wanted nature to be nature. Mm-hmm. And of course, he turned around and says, well, we really don't have anything to do with his teachings or anything like that. And I said, oh, that's interesting. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Just fraudulently using his name yeah. you know, in order to, to raise money. So, so, so yeah, you have a scenario where you have these rewilders that have a, a, this let nature be free mentality. They're using human action, man action, to rewild, which is... Yeah, so <laughs> I, I sit on Twitter with some of these rewild Scotland guys and whatever else, and I'm like, they make these outrageous you know, you know, comments, and I start to say, you know, because my films are, are not only telling a story as a filmmaker, but also it's a little bit of investing, well, probably half of it's investigative journalism. Which is neat, And yeah. we're just kind of going through there, and we want to tell both sides evenly. Yeah. So it's like, hey, you know... What do you have to say, Mr. Rewilder? What do you have to say, Mr. Keeper, on the estate? And so it's fascinating to see what they all... They all want the same thing. 
But at the end of the day, you know, what we're seeing here is a concerted effort to basically, in land reform, to get away with private land ownership, so Marxism, mm-hmm. and we, because the people that live and have the voting power in the cities and have the politicians' ears can provide the votes, but what are the politicians going to get? they got to get something for those votes. Mm-hmm. So, and everything in Scotland on the rural countryside, every single estate, whether it be a rewilding estate or a sporting estate, is subsidized by the government. Oof. None of these estates make any money. And so they're constantly trying to do whatever they can do to keep, because not, not all these estates are owned by people that have gold bars in their vaults. Certainly. You know, <laughs> most of these estates are just trying, I'd say 80% of them are just trying to eke through and they're doing, wow. I mean, I was at an estate the other day that, you know, a couple thousand acres and they used to have a, a little bit of pheasant shooting on there and, uh, uh, and some stalking for fallow deer. And they had a contractor that was actually shooting fallow deer because they got too many fallow deer, but they weren't doing any more hunts because they turned into a wedding video. And they did mm. 50 weddings this year. And that's what's making the difference now. They've, they've repurposed the property because they couldn't make any money on the sporting mm. side because just the margins weren't there and there was too much hassle coming from the government. And of course, the government's enacted all these laws and policy and, and regulations that has mm. literally almost made it impossible for the keepers to do their jobs. And hence, that's the name of the film, The Last Keeper. We feature a keeper that 38 years old, he's working at this driven grouse moor. It's the epitome of his dream job and he quits because of what the government's done. Such a shame. And when does the film come out? So we're going to start film festivals uh, February, March of this year. Uh, If you catch uh, shepherdsofwildlife.org or go to any of our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram accounts, you'll see updates on that. Uh, And then we're looking at uh, doing a theatrical weekend uh, showing uh, probably late spring, early summer throughout, you know, upwards to a thousand theaters around the United States. And then from there, we'll have it on our website, shepherdswife.org, for 30 days for a digital cinema uh, release. And then it'll start to work out through the other platforms. Killing the Shepherd's been accepted by 25 different online streaming platforms. I saw it on Tubi. Yeah, it's on Tubi, (laughs) Apple TV, uh, Amazon, uh, CuriosityStream. I mean, a lot of great great platforms have picked it up. And so I would assume that we'll probably be doing the same thing with our reps and that it'll start to go out through subscription service and then eventually on ad services that you've got to watch an ad in order to watch it. So, Mm -hmm. but, um, and then I'm also writing a book about this too. I did the same oh, thing nice. on Killing the Shepherd. I'll have to make sure you get a copy of Please, it. Please, yes. I, I would forgot love to bring some on this trip, so it's, <laughs> I've got a few people going, where's my book? Um, but uh, yeah, what I do is I write a book. Of course, when you make a film, there's a lot of things that end up on the cutting room floor. And yeah. so with this, my goal was to be able to tell not only what happened in the film, but all the things that didn't end up in the film. Yeah, to make the book stand out a little differently yeah, from the film. Yeah, it turns out. And so that's one of the things that we offer to the PBS stations, too. We offer the books Very up nice. to them. And, uh, and it's a nice compliment. You know, we've got it as a hardcover, softcover, you know, audio, ebook, all that stuff. So, um, so it's really helpful for people to kind of really understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Are you also going to be lending your filmmaking talents to cover anything in North America? You, got, you guys gave us a preview during the showing, but are you going to cover similar situations here in, in North America, specifically the lower 48? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, there, there are absolutely the same exact issues that we saw in Zambia that we're seeing in Scotland, seeing here in the lower 48 in North America. So we've already started last year a production, and we'll probably have it done sometime in 20, early 25. Uh, it's a film called The Real Yellowstone. So obviously we've all heard about the show Yellowstone. I, mean, Kevin I love Costner. the show. Yeah, it's a good yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not very realistic, and hence the it's name, the real Yellowstone. Yeah. yeah. And so what we're working with multi generational ranching families, four, five, six generations, which is about as far as we get in Montana. Uh, cow calf operations, their relationship with the land, the wildlife. Most wildlife.
wildlife in Montana does not live on public land. Most of mm -hmm. it lives on, on private land, usually on this ranch land, which is, could be irrigated hay fields and whatnot, that draws the animals in. And they're tasked with you know, having to take care of this wildlife resource. And if they don't see some sort of benefit to doing it, you, they have to ask themselves, why am I doing this? And so there's a whole plethora of issues and conflict in Montana when it comes to wildlife and wildlife conservation. You know, whether it be predators like wolves and grizzly bears. That are listed on the endangered species. Act. Yeah, and that's one of the issues, too, for us is, you know, on Rocky Mountain Front, we're working with uh, this family that's right on the edge of the Blackfeet Reservation. And, uh, you know, they've got grizzly bear sows that are coming down every spring that are teaching their young to kill their calves. It's not a very big operation, but every one of those calves represents $1,000, $1,500 in income to them, depending on, you know, what the markets are when they sell their calves in the fall. And so when you got a small operation, it's tough because these people don't get paid once a year. Mm -hmm. So you have to live for the whole year, just like farmers do, mm -hmm. until you can get, these, get, your, get your stock out and get it sold. And um, so it has a big impact. And if you lose a cow, well, that might be eight, nine, ten years worth of breeding you lose. And if you lose a, a, a bull, well, you've lost genetics. How yeah. do you value that? So you have a whole scenario. Because of the Endangered Species Act, we don't manage grizzly bears. Even though the GYE segment is fully recovered yeah. by all estimations mm -hmm. from wildlife biologists. It's, it's even exceeded carrying capacity. Far exceeded it. You're talking to a guy who's been charged yeah. multiple times in the wilderness, and it's not a fun situation yeah. because grizzly bears yeah. don't, I mean, they literally, they don't respect man because there is no cause and effect there. Now, you go to Alaska, which I spent a lot of time there. I just went first time this year. Grizzly bears, two. brown bears, yeah. exits, if they smell you, they're gone. Yeah. They get out of there because they, they're hunted. And I'm not saying that's the panacea for all this, but the reality is, is if you did have limited hunting as a conservation mm -hmm. tool, not only would we be able to, to, to create quite a bit of revenue out of this, because I know a lot of hunters would be willing to... There was to, supposed to, to be a hunt, but then the federal judge in Montana cracked down on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's good at doing all that. He's been <laughs> the biggest problem, even though he's retired. Um, judge Malloy we're talking about here. Um, oh, no, there was a different one, too. Oh, was, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Was it Christensen, I think? Yeah, so, Christensen. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you, you kind of have a mindset there that these guys... I mean, science is not prevailing here. And, yeah. and, and that's the commonality in all this stuff, whether it be Scotland or Zambia or the stuff we're doing in lower 48. Science has to be the common denominator of all these decisions we make. Yeah, there's going to be socioeconomic issues. There's going to be social, you know, cultural issues. And, and that's another thing, too, is, is that culture plays a big part of all this. Yeah. You know, people ranch because they love it. People hunt or work in the hunting industry because they love it. These people aren't making millions of dollars. You, know, you go to Africa, these outfitters are, you know, that are taking people on $100,000 safaris are not sticking money over in the Seychelles or over in the Panama Canal in some unmarked account. Everything gets spent. Mm -hmm. Everything gets spent because after they've paid for the cost of providing the opportunity for someone to go on one of these recreational tourist-type trips, then they have to pay for their own expenses. Right. They've got to put their kids in the school. They've got to pay for a vehicle. They've got to maintain their businesses, pay for their insurance. They've got to fly on a plane to America to go to a marketing conference like Safari Club or Dallas Safari Club and sit there and, and market their wares, hoping that they can find a few people willing to write the checks. Because it's not like this McDonald's that has 60 billion people walking through every day. They might get six people in a year if they're lucky. Mm -hmm. Most of these operators, when I talk about Africa, but even in Alaska and in Montana, most of these operators aren't running more than 20 or 30 people a year through their operations. I a did year. A, I did a report on the GYE, and I spoke to Senator Danes, and then I spoke to an elk outfitter who said he can't go to certain places he used to go to because mm -hmm. the grizzlies have come there. And he doesn't want to put in 
endangers or in harm's way rather his clients because of just how aggressive the bears are since they're not managed yeah. properly. So I've, I've interviewed and I've seen those people and they're not despoilers of the area. They don't want all grizzly bears dead, but you could see how like distressed they are that they can't take their clients out to these areas that they have to worry about potentially someone getting mauled to death by a bear. Yeah. And then you can't even in, in, then it's kind of hard the threshold of you know, proving for self-defense reasons. Mm-hmm. If you don't, you know, track it or have proof of it, it may be very difficult for you. With the ESA, you know, guarding this particular segment, you may have the, you may have all the facts, but you may be ruled against because someone will say, well, no, this is insufficient proof that, you know, you used it for self-defense reasons. So it's hard to prove your case for self-defense. Yeah. Because and, of this. And, and as being the recipient of a few charges, you don't want to, you know, there are mock charges, thankfully, but you don't want to be on the other end of this. And, and we really, we have to decide as a society what we're willing to live and what we're not willing to live. We're mm-hmm. starting to see grizzly bears two, three hundred miles away from where they historically have been over the last, well, you know, since the 70s, since they enacted the act uh, or added them into the act. And so it's really important. You know, I, I, the late Valorous Geist, I had an, just one opportunity to interview him for an extensive period of time before he passed away. And one of the things, you know, this is one of the guys who was one of the fathers of the North American conservation uh, movement. And he literally talked about conditioning grizzly bears because I asked him this question. I said, you know, I mean, is, is hunting going to help at all? And he said, yeah, it definitely help. Right. And he was doing his research on mm-hmm. wild sheep, you know, thin horn sheep up there in British Columbia and everything he worked on there. Uh, you know, he said back in the 50s, 60s and 70s, everybody in, in British Columbia in the woods had a gun, whether you're the mining guy or a forestry guy or a trapper or a researcher. He says bears learn pretty quick to stay away from humans because if they didn't, bad things happen. Well, I mean, let's figure it. We do the same thing, right? You know, we don't want to go into a certain neighborhood because we know there's some bad shit that happens in there. Well, you can't tell me, and he told me, anybody that tells you that a grizzly bear can't be conditioned is, is full of bullpucky. Yeah. <laughs> so, and so that's, that's the reality we're dealing with here. And you know, so we have a whole group of, a whole industry of people that have an agenda, and it's about power and control. Yeah. It's our anti-use, anti-hunting group people. Um, you know, the Humane Society of the United States does not do conservation. The NRDC, wise use, CBD. Yeah, uh, you just go their list. What they justice. do, what they have to do is they have to have a crisis. Yeah. And when you have a crisis, you can raise money. Oh yeah. Because if I go to my donor and say the world's going to end tomorrow, give me a million dollars. The donor says, here's your million dollars. Mm-hmm. Next year, I've saved the world. Next year, I come to the same donor Double and say, it. give me a million dollars. Yeah. Well, you saved the world. Why should I give you a million dollars? So you keep moving the goalposts. We saw mm-hmm. this in Scotland with all these rewilding groups. Oh, well, this isn't good enough. We've got to change this. The same thing we have with Endangered Species Act here in the United States. You see this constant moving of the goalposts. Mm-hmm. Science has to be king. We see it in CITES. Uh, what was it mm-hmm. CITES in, in, uh, in uh, COP19 in last fall, uh, a year ago, uh, in Panama City. And I interviewed uh, Secretary General Yvonne Herrera, and I said, when is science going to be the ultimate factor in these decision-making processes, because that's not what I'm saying. Well, no, it's science. I said, no, it isn't. <laughs> it's not at all. And uh, it's fascinating to see. I actually watched the chief lobbyist for the Humane Society International beyond the roped-off area where the government delegates were, which was you're not allowed to be there huh. as an NGO, during discussion and votes, whispering in the ears of Northern Africa oh, and Western African countries' delegates. And they all voted. Not surprising. They all voted against use of, of trade. Yeah. You know, and of course, CITES is all about the international trade of flora and fauna. Mm-hmm. You know, again, getting back to what our conservation model is and what has worked and what the IUCN has said, you know, North America and Southern Africa are the only two places in the world where wildlife populations are holding their own or increasing. It's all because they're providing a value to humans. They're seeing a benefit from doing mm-hmm. conservation work. And because of that, we take care of the resource. It's amazing how that works.
No. So if my listeners are interested in learning more about your efforts, maybe someone has an idea to put in your ear for a future project, how would you best recommend them to connect with you? Just come to shepherdswildlife.org. Go ahead and hit the contact form, and it'll pop up somewhere in one of my, one of my boxes. So, yeah, that's the best way to do it. Or, or to follow me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, you know, I'll answer any and every question uh, and every message that gets to me. I, I definitely take a look at it. And, and you want people, people to reach out to you for film screenings? Yeah, yeah. So if there's anybody interested in, in especially if you've got a, a sort of educational opportunity uh, with a university or even elementary schools, if they would like to have uh, what we do with our educational films, we put them on our website. Uh, we can also make files available so people can actually play them, you know, instead of just using the website and online streaming. Uh, and then we can follow it up with Zoom calls if they want to have questions, you know, happy to do whatever we can. Uh, same thing goes for corporations. If they want to do a corporate board uh, deal, you know, we can sit talk to them what's going on. I'd, I'd love to sit down with all the major airlines boards and talk to them about uh, deciding to ban uh, the importation of wildlife trophies on their airplanes and not transporting them. Because uh, it's interesting, I think, if they really realized the impact they have on rural communities and devaluing their natural resources and how that's literally uh, having an adverse effect on their human rights, I think that might change their mind. I may know uh, some people more. connected to Delta that yeah. I may be able to put you in touch with, actually. Love to do that. But, you know, politicians, media people, any of that, if anybody's got somebody that wants to see what we're doing, have them mm -hmm. go to shepherdswildlife.org, contact us, and I'm happy to follow up anything with, with uh, personal discussions. Yeah, I'll include everything you've referenced into the show notes. Tom, it was a pleasure. Thank you so yeah, much, no, and Gabriel, come back anytime. You. No, it's been awesome. Thank you for what you do. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. If you enjoyed what you heard today, go leave us some reviews on Apple and Spotify or wherever podcasts are played. Your feedback will help us reach more people, and I love to know what is on your mind after each episode. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement because that is our way of updating all of you listeners, and we have just hit 1,000 followers on Instagram for the podcast account. Thank you very much. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you want to hear on the show, I'm all ears. I would love to hear your feedback there. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.